All right, you may be seated. Thank you very much. So, Brian, I want to take just a few moments uh, to just ask you some questions about something that I thought was very, um, that kind of stoked an interest in my heart in regards to this ranch that you have, okay? Because from what I hear, that it's not a normal, everyday ranch. Explain to me what this ranch is about. Lonesome Dove Ranch is located just outside of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, outside of Rockwall, Texas, um, uh, off of I-30. And we really do three things. Uh, it's a full working ranch. We have 10 therapy horses, and uh, uh, it's a working ranch with herds of cattle and all those kinds of things. But our main objective is, number one, we serve uh, exploited children. So they've been removed from their homes due to some, uh, some type of abuse, abandonment, neglect, uh, sexual trafficking, all, all that kind of stuff. And they wind up coming to the ranch, and we serve them in a host of different ways. Um, we also train under resource leaders, um, uh, pastors. We target people in rural communities that are underserved, under-resourced, and train their leaders and help their churches grow. Um, and then uh, one of the third thing that we do that really makes us tick is that we turn the hearts of fathers back to their children. So we help resource fathers in engaging their children that are still at home. Good. So how did this come about? Kind of where did this birth, the vision of it? Everything that we do there was birthed out of the pain in my own life. So I was a sexually exploited child from a very dysfunctional family. Um, I grew up in a rural church community and um, small town, everybody knew everybody, small church, everybody knew everybody. And I couldn't wait. I left my town despised. You know, I was kind of like Jesus. They said, what good can come from Nazareth? I, I really left the town and couldn't wait to get out of it. And the older I've gotten, the more my heart is longed for home. And I've nostalgically longed for the things I despised growing up. And just having a seat at the table uh, of influence now, I feel responsible. Because had it not been for the times we had uh, in those little churches, we would have never made it to where we are today. And so I just sense the uh, responsibility to give back. And so the pain from the childhood experiences, the... Uh, the need to give back to the community that invested so much in me, uh, and I'm not going to go back to that zip code, but I can serve those communities all over the U.S. Um, and then, because my father left, uh, he abandoned my family and left. So one man abused me, my father walked out on us, and so uh, I just have this heart to, I made a commitment to be the dad he never was. And there were men who stepped up in my life to be father figures for me uh, that I wouldn't have made it without them. They weren't related to me at all, but they mentored me. And, and so we help dads. Haley's family was a foster family, so they took in kids like me. So our goal was at some point, not now, we didn't plan on this now. We planned on later on in life to take her experience as a rodeo family. I grew up as a farm family. If you don't know, cowboys and farmers are two different kinds of people, but I, I'm not a cowboy, I'm a farmer, okay? Uh, she grew up in a cowboy family. Um, um, we wear two different kinds of hats, okay? But, uh, uh, so, but I wanted to take the outdoors. She wanted to combine our worlds and serve. Uh, you, God takes our pain and redeems it. Yes, he does. And uses it as a passport into the brokenness of other people's lives. So we envisioned retiring from the church early. I wanted to do a Barry Sanders, you know, quit while I was at the top of my game. Uh, and go do this the rest of our lives. And uh, just kind of happened right now. We're doing both. So. so how can we, North Church, the crew that's listening to you right now, um, support, pray for, uh, help you reach this vision and accomplish what these dreams in your heart in regards to the ranch? 
Well, one of the ways to get hands-on is we have churches all over America who come and serve these kids. Uh, they, it's, it's a church camp, and they come and they serve as counselors, and so we can help facilitate that. Um, we have groups that come down and do... I have about eight miles of fence that has to be painted and maintained, and, and so we have teams that come in and help do those kinds of things. But right now, we're really trying... I'm in the process of turning in a little dining hall into a commercial kitchen. And so um, we're in the process of trying to start raising the funds for that uh, and building that. I can get some state licensing once I have that that allows me to do some uh, more intense long-term things. So that's what we're after. So just pray for us. Look, we are, if you don't think you unlock hell, when when, uh, CPS calls us and tells us there's a seven-year-old girl that has been found in a hotel... Uh, because she was used up by grown men, and the housekeeping staff found that seven-year-old girl in a hotel. She's so traumatized, they didn't know where to do, what to do with her. And so the caseworker knew about our ranch and said, can we get her into your ranch? We were full, um, but we said, we can't. We got to figure out a way to fit this girl in. Her name was Haley. That's my wife's name. And she came in, and we had her Bible printed and all her signs made up and a room decorated in her name. And when she walked in the door, she just had a, I mean, she just broke down. She didn't want to be Haley anymore. And when Haley said, baby, that's my name. It's a beautiful name. Seven years old, whatever the memories were, we said, well, what do you want to be? And she said, I want to be McKenna. So we changed everything. We went and had a Bible. So all week long, she was McKenna, 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 McKenna. Uh, God did some incredible things in her life that we never know who's going to pick these kids up, uh, caseworker, but there was a potential adoptive family that came and uh, we were able to, to get her uh, connected with that family, go through the process of adoption for her forever family, and she was adopted under the name McKenna. So she got a new name, a new hope, a new... And so that's just kind of who we are, what we do. It, it's a heart-wrenching thing, but we need that prayer. When you start touching me, the Haley's that become McKenna's, uh, the enemy doesn't sit over there silently. You fight every day. Well, come on, this is good, isn't it? <clears throat> So obviously the prayer, obviously there's some, there's some physical things that people could go and do and be a part of. They can connect in the lobby. Uh, you can go to his uh, uh, table back there. All that information you can get, take with you. You can find out more information. Uh, go back there immediately following uh, this service. And then you mentioned the dining room. Do you have a dollar amount what we're looking at right there? It's going to cost you. I actually, I have a, a Greek businessman in Dallas who... Uh, put up 175000 He said he's not even a believer. Okay, And he said he closed on a deal with some Chinese investors, and he was talking to one of our volunteers and said, tell me about that ranch. And he said it's going to cost about 350000 325 to build this thing. And he said, I will match half of that. And he just he said, my dad told me to take care of the kids, and I could never go wrong. So this is an unbelieving uh, gr- guy from Greece uh, who has put up $175,000 to match. So when we get that matched, it'll be about a $325,000 project. Okay. All right. So North Church, you've heard that God speak to you, and let's pray, okay? Let's pray about that, and let's ask God to speak to us uh, each and every— because I, I've asked Brian to come up here. He's going to preach to you, okay? Uh, but this is very much the gospel in action. This is— that he, he is taking the gospel and being the hands and feet of Jesus in his ministry. And so I want us to stretch your hand right now and let's pray for Brian and Haley and their efforts and uh, for the ranch. 
Father, and for the kids and for all that's going to happen. We just pray right now the power of your spirit, God. God, may you just direct, give wisdom to Brian. God, give insight to Brian. Give favor to Brian. God, give courage. God, to make the hard calls. God, begin to send the right people. And God, I pray within us, may you do something in us that causes us to be able to have that burden to pray and to intercede for him and the ranch and the kids and all that's happening. And God, all the legal issues, all the stuff, the protective, God, what needs to happen to protect this ranch, but God, also to move it forward financially. And God, to be able to see these dreams and these visions that God has birthed in his heart, accomplished by the power in the name of Jesus. God, speak to us now. God, as we are praying for him, connect us in spirit in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. I just want to say what a treasure it is tonight to be at North Church with you and to be with our dear friends, Rodney and Shannon. You know, you have people that come in and out of your life, uh, and they're there for seasons, and then you have people that God puts in your life, and they're there for your life. And these are the kinds of people. And it's just been such a joy throughout our lives to watch God's hand of favor upon their life, and as it has uh, been evident in this church. I remember the first baptisms that happened in, in the backyard of a home in a swimming pool and, uh, and celebrating with you then uh, and now celebrating with every new location and every new baptism and every soul saved and the maturity of our kids growing up together. It just, uh, it's just been a joy to have friends like them. And uh, I, I, We were counting up. I was here preaching 13, 14 years ago. Um, but it's been, uh, we've tried, it just hasn't happened, uh, and I just really sense that God has orchestrated this. I don't do this a lot anymore. I don't travel out because of the ranch and the responsibilities of the church, but I just sense God made this happen. I normally don't get to go with Haley. Uh, Haley was able to be with me tonight, which is a special treat, and, and uh, so I really do sense in my heart I have a moment, a word to share with you for the moment, just, just for North Church tonight. I'm going to be looking different places in the Word, but I'm going to begin in Isaiah, uh, a really unique place, Isaiah chapter 30. And to give you a little bit of background here, uh, the people of God are at a season where they have become so self-reliant. They have tried to fight their own battles without the help of God, and uh, the Lord is really frustrated because they're on the way to ruin, and they don't even know it. They're blinded by their own pride. And the world is about to come apart. And, and they, he sees it. He knows it. He's trying to warn them. But they're so blinded they don't see it. And earlier in the verses, before we begin to read, you'll read about how swiftly the devastation is about to come upon them. And it's ultimately their pride and self-reliance that is going to bring it. They have stopped being dependent on God, trusting in Him, stopped waiting on Him. They're doing their own deal. They know better, but they're doing their own deal. In verse 15, it goes on and says, This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. So he's addressing their predicament. Only in returning to me, which is repentance, and in resting in me will you be saved from the devastation that was coming. In quietness and confidence, that's trust, is your strength. In trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will get our help from Egypt. We're going to trust man-made power and devices. They will give us swift horses and for riding into battle, but the only swiftness you're going to see is the swiftness of your enemies chasing you. One of them will chase a thousand of you. Five of them will make all of you flee. 
You will be left like a lonely flagpole on a hill or a tattered banner on a distant mountain. So the Lord, listen to this compassion, okay? They're defiant. He has pursued them. They will not listen to Him. And they're about to run themselves into the ground in their own human dependency. But verse 18 shows you the length of His mercy and His long-suffering. He says, So the Lord must wait for you to come to Him so He can show you His love and compassion. For the Lord is a faithful God. Blessed are those who wait for His help. Just let that be the bookend of our conversation tonight and just let it be the framework. I'm not going to go through every line exegetically, but just let it be the framework of our conversation today. A few years ago, I led the church I pastor, North Place Church in the Dallas area, through a series of messages we called Reset. And we did it at the beginning of the year because we thought it would be a great time for us to perform a hard reset in our lives in the same way we perform hard resets on our routers and our digital devices to restore lost connectivity. And, and I would say, when I thought about coming here tonight, that these few nights and days that you have as a church as a spiritual emphasis, a moment, can serve you in the same way. These revival services serve as that moment of a hard reset because by being here, you're saying no to something. Okay? There's a whole lot of other things you could have said yes to tonight, but you said no to a lot of things to create space in your life for God to do something unusual in us. And so this moment has the potential to recalibrate and reset our lives around Him and around His waves. Now recently, God's really been dealing with me, and I have this heavy burden and I've been having this conversation, a very vulnerable conversation with the church at large and its leaders. I started in my own church and the leadership at North Place Church, but I, I've taken some form or another of this conversation to the global church and the global leaders at large. And I argued with God when he started dealing with me about having these kinds of conversations. And there are a whole lot of reasons why it'd be better for me to have some other conversation with you or anyone else tonight. But the main reason is having a conversation like I'm going to have tonight forces me to confess ongoing sin in my life. The sin of self-reliance and distrust, which both are the fruit and offspring of a deeper issue, the issue of pride. Over the last few years, the Lord has forced me back into a remedial course on trust. He's making me relearn things that I thought I had already mastered, and I find myself caught in this awful cycle of surrendering and trusting and then sliding back into self-reliance and distrust. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. I don't want you to think I'm some rookie up here. I, I know what it means to trust God deeply. I can point you to undeniable moments in our life, in our marriage, where both man and God would affirm that we have trusted God in the deepest of ways. I've modeled trust. I've taught trust. I've written a book on trust. I mean, there's a book out there that helps support the ranch. It's called Extravagant. Usually when we use the word extravagant, it's a negative word to describe the extravagant way somebody spends money or the extravagant way somebody lives their life. But in the most literal sense, the word extravagant, Extravagant means unrestrained excess. 
And what if extravagant became the descriptor of the, the level of our devotion? What if we lived with worship of unrestrained excess, generosity of unrestrained excess, sacrifice and trust and surrender of faith of unrestrained excess, that we were extravagant before God in every way? I have the book. I've written it. I, I, I've talked about it. I've preached it because I've lived it. But if I were to be honest... I find myself in seasons of life where worry is more natural to me than trust. And trying to do something to help God out in those moments where it seems like nothing happens or is happening, that God is somewhere silent or gone on vacation in my life when I need a breakthrough or I need a miracle, there are moments when worry becomes more natural and trying to help God out is easier than waiting on Him to be God. And so I wind up going back and forth from surrender to self-reliance, from trust to distrust, and that hasn't always been the case for me. There was a time in my life when it was easier to trust God because I didn't have anything to lose. I really want to encourage you tonight to listen, not just hear what I'm saying, but listen deeply to it. Not because I think I'm all that profound, but I just know that the way the Lord has stirred me in the last few days leading up to our time together, that there is a prophetic potential and a destiny-altering moment in front of us if we don't just hear words, but we listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church. I started preaching at age 16. Had a radical encounter. I was a drunk. Had a radical encounter, stealing liquor out the back of a store I worked in. I met Jesus and started preaching right away. I was traveling at 17 on a regular basis, 17 and 18. At 19, Haley and I got married young. I was married at 19, and our full-time vocation as was traveling in ministry. We were evangelists full-time. And for years, because I started so young, I was hosted by pastors who were old enough to be my fathers, in some cases my grandfathers, and even a few cases my great-grandfather, based in the separation of our ages. And the majority of those men were spiritual giants. But there were far too many times... I ran into some along the way that rebuked me for my optimism and childish naivety about the future of the church. It was as if through their lenses, it was as if the best days of the church had already come and gone and that all my generation and those that would come after me can possibly do, the best we could possibly do is sit around the table and listen to their stories about the way it used to be when God was really God and when God was still moving miraculously in the world. And if we were lucky, we might actually travel to a few places in the world pastored by a few of their crony friends that hadn't forgotten the old-time way. But outside of those places and those few generals that were left, the future for me and my family and my kids and the church at large was basically hopeless. And among that camp, there was a, a cynicism, a bitterness, a complacency that marked their life. And I, as I learned from them about what not to be, I, could, I can't imagine it started out that way. I, I just have to believe 
those bitter old men at one point in their life were as full of faith and vision and excitement and zeal at one point in their life as I was then starting out as a young preacher of the gospel. I had to believe that what God was doing in my heart, my excitement for the kingdom, what he was, this future, this faith that I was believing in for the church, for my life, for our ministry, they had to have that at one time. But somewhere along the way, they lost their excitement for the work of God and it moved to a place of bitterness and negativity and complacency. And I could write another book on the horror stories of just plain, mean pastors that hosted Haley and I that we preached for in those older years. And every time we would leave one of those conversations or one of those meetings or whether it was a meal at their house or a restaurant or we, we were in that environment, that culture, we would go back to a hotel or for years we slept in a, we lived, that was our home in a travel trailer. We would go back to lay down in one of those travel trailers uh, and, and, and we would say to each other, God, don't let us become those people. We were young, but we weren't dumb. We were smart enough to know what we didn't know, and there's a lot we didn't know. But one thing we settled in our heart way back then is that when we aged and grew older, we did not want to become cynical, crotchety, negative, bitter old people in ministry. I started out praying a prayer in those early years. I still pray it today. And we would say this, Father, don't let me become that guy. Or when it was Haley and I, we would pray, don't let us become those people. And when I pray that prayer, I can tell you there are a host of faces that go across my, my mind of the people. Many of them already gone on to heaven now. Uh, thank God for grace. But they've already gone on to heaven now. And I remember vividly the people that I don't want to be. Here's the problem. Typically, the more we age, the more risk-averse we become. Children see possibility in everything. But the longer we live, the more heartache we experience, we lose our naivety. Somebody hurts us, somebody steps on us, somebody does something to us somewhere along the way. And it's a natural progression, if we aren't careful, to start seeing every reason why something won't work instead of every reason why it will and in our youthful naivety, we saw possibility. We were full of faith. We were full of hope. Somewhere along the way, life happened, and life can happen to you when you're 15. Life can happen to you when you're 25. Life can happen to you when you're 40. But somewhere along the way, life happens, and God and people don't meet our expectations. It's a slow fade, but it doesn't happen overnight. But we wake up one day, and we have slowly, incrementally become that guy. We've become those people. And the older I get, the more I understand how easy it is without even knowing it to drift to the place subtly and slowly that we wake up one day and we become the people that we've tried our whole lives to never be. I have more to lose now than I've ever had to lose in my life. Stepping out in faith today is a greater risk than it's ever been. If it doesn't work, it's going to affect my kids like it never would have in the past. If, if, if it doesn't work today, stepping out and trusting God in some radical leap of faith, I have less life in front of me to recover from those acts of obedience. Failure is going to cost me more. There are more people today that know who I am. So it's easier for me at this season of life to play it safe and keep a good name rather than take crazy risk and have a chance of failing in front of everybody and letting there be a mark on my image or my reputation. There's a lot of people counting on me. 
The weight of expectation as a pastor is heavy. We just completed a second phase in our church that brought us to about $21 million in and a $10 million phase three about to launch. I've got tons of fiduciary responsibilities, so my steps need to be more calculated in this season of life, and, and our risks need to be more minimized today than ever before. At least that makes sense, right? I mean, it sounds like wisdom with all that's going on, but, but, but here's the reality. I didn't get where I am today by minimizing risk. I didn't get where I am by taking calculated steps. We didn't get to this point in life by managing an image. I started out as a naive, whimsical 16-year-old preacher kid that took God at His word. I had nothing to lose. I trusted Him like nothing else mattered. There was no image to manage. There were no budgets to balance. When He said, go, I was all in. When He said, jump, I jumped. When He said, go, I went. When He said, give it all away, we did. Three times in our life, we emptied everything. We gave the house away. We gave the kids college funds away. We gave up our salary. We lived without an income. I mean, over and over again, he asked. And in those days, people thought we were crazy. We just thought we are doing what God said. We didn't argue. We just obeyed. I'm a few weeks away from my 45th birthday. And it leaves me asking a very honest question of myself and out loud in front of you. In midlife, and I don't care if you're older than me or way younger than me, you need to wrestle with this because it's, in midlife, why is it harder to jump, to go, to give than it ever was before? I mean, sure, I could sit here tonight and list you a thousand logical reasons why everybody tones down and mellows out and plays it safe. But the road to becoming that guy and those people is lined with every one of those logical reasons. A few years ago, I had a life-defining moment on the floor of a Doubletree Hotel. I was dying under the weight of everybody's expectations. I was booked into that hotel to preach at this large convention and the service was over and I went back. I was losing my soul, literally. Not eternally. I, I wasn't backsliding morally, but in a way I was because I was doubting where I used to have faith and I was second-guessing where I used to trust and I was criticizing what I used to bless and I was holding tighter to what I used to be willing to let go of. Somewhere along the way, I stopped playing to win and started playing not to lose. And there's a big, big difference in that. It was as if God let me see myself as that guy. The guy I had prayed my whole life to never be, and I had become him. And I fell on my face on the carpet of that hotel floor, and I yelled. I mean, I was crying, I was weeping, and I said, what happened to me? I mean, where's that crazy, young, faith-filled, risk-taking kid that used to live in here? I want to be him again. I I miss him. I I miss that risk-taking, trusting kid, and I've lost him somewhere along the way. In the middle of all these responsibilities and all these bodies and these buildings and these budgets, I've lost my soul. Help me find him again. I learned something that night. The distance between that faith-filled, risk-taking, naive kid and that grumpy, bitter old man are not all that far apart. Just about that much difference. 
There's a fine line that separates the two. I just I want to share this with you, and it's an, it's not a digression; it's an illustration. Pastor, thank you for giving me a chance to share the passion of our heart in the ranch. Our goal was to do that in our retirement. Okay, I mean, I'm going to retire young, but I got 12, 15 years. I'll still be young and enough to go then squeeze out the juice of the rest of my life doing this ranch thing. And one of our staff members walks in and said, "Hey, Pastor." You know, there's a ranch that just came up for sale out of Dallas and shows me the real estate listing, and it was millions of dollars. And I said, you're that many millions of dollars short and uh, about 20 years too early, man. This just can't be right now. I, there's no way I can do both of these, pass or this and that. And so I didn't pay any attention to it. I just went on to the workout in the gym. I guess he didn't like my response, so he sent the email link to Haley. So I walked into the house that day after the gym, and she, uh, she said, did the bear send you that link to the ranch? I said, well, yeah, Haley, but we had just a few years early given our home away and lived with another family in the church and got back on our feet and we're in a beautiful home a builder had just gotten for us and helped us move into and and um, where our kids are getting ready to go to college. She's nesting. And, I mean, we're finally having some semblance of stability in our life from all these crazy things, those obedience moments in our life to just be extravagant in our devotion and surrender and worship. And and, and we finally kind of have a niche and we're trying to get on our feet. And, and I, I said, yeah, he sent it to me, but this is not the right season. And she said, I, I'd give it all up again if God said to, I said, really? Like, don't you, don't women nest? I mean, don't you? That's what everybody says. So we, we went out and looked, and I got on the phone, and it was incredible. I mean, it was blown away, but it was way beyond us. So I, I started, I, I had a, a charity with no financial records, and I'm meeting with lenders. You want to do What? I want to turn this horse farm into a place where we engage sexually exploited children. And let me see your financial. I don't have any financial statements. I have a 501c3 and a whole lot of faith. Well, banks don't loan money on that. Every lead, which I expected, I just sensed in my heart I was supposed to try, and I so I had proven it wasn't going to work. It was heading into Easter. Our church was about to, uh, to launch into a season where we're going to see hundreds of souls come into the kingdom. And I woke up one morning. My kids were all about to go to school, and I just looked at them. Because my little daughter, who's 15 at the time, was 10 or 11, um, and she, she said, Dad, we're going to get this ranch, and we're going to name the first horse Miracle. And I'm like, oh, don't do that. because, Oh, God. She's... It's going to wreck her, you know. When this doesn't happen, it's going to wreck her. So I set everybody down that morning at the table. They're getting ready to go to school, and I said, I need to apologize. This is a this is Haley. This is exactly what I said. I said, this whole ranch thing is is a is the devil parading around as an angel of light. He's trying to distract us. Easter is coming down the pipe. I have been the door slammed in my face every day for the last 14 days, and I don't blame them. I wouldn't loan me the money either. 
It doesn't make sense. And we have wasted time and energy when we should have been praying and fasting and seeking God for the souls that are going to be saved at North Place. And I'm just going on. I mean, and I, Haley will tell you, I talk to them like I'm talking to you right now. I preach all the time. I don't have, you know... In the restaurant, when we're talking at restaurants, we're out on a romantic date. She says, please, people think you're mad at me. Just talk. Well, the people, they're like, oh, that poor lady sitting over there. He's just giving. Because I'm, I'm like, I'm just telling her I love her. You know, and they just, she's like, please just back off. Just, but I'm this way. So I'm just preaching at them, repenting, and I've let the devil get a foothold and distract us and and my phone buzzes. And I, I, this is, I, don't pay, I don't pay attention in moments like that, but I noticed it was from Lucretia. Lucretia is a saint of a lady in our church whose husband had just died with cancer. She's a widow. She's a prayer warrior. And I said, i got to look at this. Lucretia's reaching out. And I, I thought it was something to do with the death of her husband. And she's just battled her own battle with some financial issues. And so I just didn't want to ignore Lucretia. And it was an email and in the email, she said, Pastor, I, I got up in the middle of the night and didn't know what else to do, but I've been waiting till morning to email you this. And I don't know what this has to do with. And so I stopped and in the middle of reading her email in front of my kids. I'm in, I'm in mid-sermon. And I just stop and I start crying. And they said, what's wrong, Dad? And this is what the email said. Hi, Pastor Brian. Last night, the Lord really impressed a message upon me for you. He said, an opportunity is coming your way. Your first inclination will be to decline it and forget about it. Don't. Take it to the Father. There are things in play that you can't see right now, and this opportunity will lead to another more important door, a divine appointment. Just follow His lead and don't dismiss anything until He says to. One of my kids looked up at me and said, now what are you going to do? <laughs> I was humbled and grateful that God allowed my kids to see the power of the Holy Spirit operative in our family, the gifts of the Spirit in operation through His church, speaking to His people, turning our life on a dime. And I said, okay. I'll keep looking like a fool. I'll just, I got a word from God. Now it really doesn't matter. It's not up to me anymore. It's not my deal. It's His. I was more convinced out of that moment that God was going to make this happen after that moment than anything. But a few weeks into this whirlwind, I asked God, we're selling, we're selling our house and positioning to give for the next time everything we own away to the charity to do our part to position it to get to this ranch and empty everything again. And I'm like, God, where did this come from? You know, I wasn't even praying about this. He said, yes, you did. You've been praying about this your whole life because this is the very thing that's going to keep you from becoming that guy. 
The risk and the faith and the personal cost associated with this step of faith, the timing of it, it is necessary to keep your heart young and your spirit alive. Yeah, this is about small town pastors, and yes, this is about restoring the broken hearts of children, but this is also about answering the personal prayer that vision and faith would fuel your life every day of your life. You see, I want to be like Caleb. And if you know anything about Caleb, Caleb was this guy, when they got ready to seize the promised land, he, along with Joshua, were the only two voices of faith in the middle of the pessimism that said, we can take it. He was outvoted by the older majority in Numbers 13. He was 40 years old, and he was outvoted by the older generation. Numbers 13, 30 says this, Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. That was God's word. That was God's desire. But the pessimism of the moment ruled the day. Because while Joshua and Caleb saw grapes that they had never seen in their life, the pessimists saw the giants. These kids saw every reason why it would work, and the other people saw every reason why it wouldn't. But the whole course of God's people was thwarted by the the worry and the pessimism. So Caleb is now 85 years old. And when you get to 85 years old, what, what happened in his life between 40 when he was shut down and heartbroken and things didn't materialize and what he stepped out in faith for, the spiritual authorities in his life ripped it from him. It never happened. It never happened. And here he is at 85 years of age. He had every reason to become a crotchety, bitter old man. But at 85 years old, you see the same faith, same trust, same innocence, same naivety, same passion. Joshua 14.10, it says this, And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, here I am this day, 85 years old, and yet as strong as as on that day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. Now, therefore, give me this mountain. I have the same faith and passion. I didn't let the system ruin me. I didn't let people ruin me. Listen, you, you got to know, when you're in leadership, not, sheep bite. And not everybody who speaks in tongues is sweet. And and he dealt with all of it. But at 85 years old, they came back around to that spot. He said, I remember this spot. We're going to take this place this time. Because now I got the authority. I'm the old man here. I'm the old man on the outside, but I'm as young as I ever was on the inside. And God is the same God as he's ever been. I've been 45 years in a season delay. And this is the moment. Give us this mountain. I love Caleb because he never became... That guy. You know what the Lord said about him? The Lord said this in verse 24 of Numbers 14. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him, a different spirit, and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. So all of Caleb's generation died. But because Caleb was different, 
He had a different spirit. You know what I'm praying? At 45, as I come into this season of midlife, I've always been the youngest guy in the room up until the last few years of my life. And that's not the case anymore. And now I'm more interested in the culture and in the environment I set for my kids and their, their kids and younger generations. What I'm leaving behind is more important than what I'm going to accomplish myself. And I just want to live the rest of my life with a different spirit. I don't want to be a statistic. I don't want to be the mark. I, I don't want to take the trajectory that everybody else seems to take in their life. When they get hurt and wounded, I'm going to get hurt and wounded. You can't live your life and not be offended. The only way you'll never be offended is just go ahead and go crawl in your coffin. Somebody is going to offend you. If you're living, you're going to have an offense. But how you respond to that is going to determine the trajectory of the rest of your life. They don't have to determine the trajectory. The hurt, the pain doesn't have to determine the trajectory. You get to determine it with how you respond to it. God... Give me that, whatever that is he had, that different spirit. Give it to me. Some people that would know Haley and I well would hear me talk like this and they'd say, Pastor, how can you be so hard on yourself? You know, you about that sin of self-reliance and all that pride stuff. I mean, we've watched your life. You've trusted. And look what God's done at a short time at North Place and what he's done at the church and in your lives and at the ranch. And I mean, it looks like you really do trust him. And I would tell you that looks can be deceiving because here's the way I'm wired. Maybe you're different, but here's the way I'm wired. It's easy for me to take leaps of faith and harder for me to trust him after I jump. I can get to the edge and sense God, thus say it, I get Lucretia's emails, say, all right, I heard you, God, we're going to do it. And I do it, and I work like nobody's tomorrow to make it happen, and then it happens, and the bills start coming in. And that's when I'm like, oh, God, it's the end. I mean, Haley and I tell you, we, the, the second night we moved to the ranch, we sat in bed and cried, what did we do? There's cows mooing and horses whinnying and bullfrogs yipping and snakes crawling and, and hay to cut and nobody there. It's just us. We didn't even own a tractor. I had a Cub Cadet lawnmower. I bought at Tractor Supply to mow a suburban yard. What's that going to do? God said, yes, we're stupid, foolish. We're, we'll do it, God. Just We've proven it. It's never been him getting me to, be the, to look like a fool. I've looked like a fool my whole life, honoring God. People criticize us, talk bad about us. And then he'll come behind us, and in spite of our stupidity and naivety, he'll bless the ignorance of our faith. And something comes out of nothing every time. But I... I haven't matured to the place that I can trust him after I jump. Because I take years off my life and I worry and I fret and I've literally gone to bed crying because I jump. But I, I, can't, I can't trust him like I ought to in between. The temptation is for me to point to those mountaintop moments where I trusted enough to take a leap of faith. And that's what people remember. All of that is well and good. But if I spend the weeks and months and years in between the mountaintops worrying... 
What good is it? Because when I'm worrying, I'm not trusting. Listen, the peaks define the perception of your life. The dips and valleys between the mountains define the character of your life. The people will applaud you and publishers will ask you to write books based on the peaks. But what defines your character is whether or not you sit back and worry in between the peaks. Fret and blame and you got us into this mess. And About uh, a few months into closing on the ranch, I'm trying to pastor the church in a building program, trying to get the ranch off the ground. I don't want to cheat the church to help the ranch, and so I'm, I'm working 14-hour days and trying to accept every invitation uh, because anytime we travel, the resources go back to fund the ranch, and so I'm in and out. I'm, I'm working, flying out, speaking, coming back, working through the night to help the church, trying to do all the stuff at the ranch. We didn't have any help at that particular time. I'm literally, physically killing myself. I'm overworked, I'm emotionally drained, and I remember driving up to the post office, and I had gone on a tear for two weeks, and the resources didn't happen the way that I thought they would in some of the places that I'd been to try to fund this thing, and I said, God, what are you doing to me? And I never heard an audible voice in my life, but I'm pulled up at the post office in Wiley, Texas, and he said, I didn't do this to you. I told you to get this ranch. I didn't tell you to go on some cross-country tour to raise money for it. You did that. You're stressed out, wore out, killing yourself. That all, that's your doing, not mine. I told you I was going to take care of it. So I'm having this conversation between my truck and the post office. And I open the door. And I needed a $50,000 miracle to make ends meet in the first six months where we were. And I, I opened that door and I started going through the mail. And I opened there and there was a $50,000 check in there from a person I'd never met in my life. And I fell on my knees in that post office and I wept. It was the busiest hour of the day. People were coming in there wondering who I was, what was going on. I, I know they pitied me, but I'm crying this. I, I was repenting because I'm, I'm cheating my family. I'm cheating the church. I'm destroying my life, trying to help God out. And then blaming Him for the mess I'm creating. Why, why did you make me? I didn't make you do this. You're doing this to yourself. And then the provision was in the mail the whole time because he said it would be. I'm lacking the spiritual maturity to trust between the leaps and I need his grace and I need to grow up. And that's why that Isaiah passage means so much to me because... This was God's word for me in that moment, and it's the word that narrates my life, navigates my life to this day. Isaiah 30, 15, this is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. You can trust Him. 
I don't know what he's telling you to do. I don't know what you're in the middle of. I don't know what leap of faith you've not taken because you're, you're not trusting or what leap of faith you have taken and you're so full of worry. There are businesses to be started, churches to be planted, missionaries to be sent, conversations to be had on the other side of the restroom that have not yet happened the other side of the restaurant. Just, just because we're, we don't trust enough to all the what ifs that we leave the results, we think the results are up to us. We, we, we have faith to do some things and then we take a step and then we worry or we never take a step. I mean, I'm not the only one with this problem. David had that problem. You know the one that killed a lion and a bear and gave him the faith to take out a giant with a stone and he had this naive trust in God and God elevated him because of the favor and put him, made him the king over the entire nation and now he's a king and he's got a treasury. He's got all this army and it's time to go to battle. You know what David does? David said, let's count our army. God said, go to war. David said, we're not going to war until we find out how many soldiers we have. And Joab said, sire, what? What happened to you? you? You never counted before. When God said something, you did it. it. It didn't, I mean, that's been the marker your whole life. Why do you need to take a census now? David demanded a census. You say, well, Pastor, he wasn't disobedient, he was just waiting. Delayed obedience before God is disobedience. Judgment came on the people because David took a census. And it says this in 1 Chronicles 21.7. It's in the message paraphrase. And God, offended by the whole thing, punished Israel. Then David prayed, I have sinned badly in what I've just done, substituting statistics for trust. Forgive my sin. I've been really stupid. It was self-reliance and distrust, which is the children of the sin of pride. Remember Abraham and Sarah? They had a promise, but they couldn't wait. So they tried to help God out and created Ishmael. He's worth waiting on. I'm going to leave this one last word and close. Somebody needs this today. I wasn't going to say this. Somebody needs this today. Some of you are in this room today. I don't know if you're 18 and God gave you a word at a kid's camp service or some of you are 40 and God spoke to you in college or some of you are 80 and God spoke to you when you're in your 40s. He put something in your heart. It's been so long between the word and the fulfillment of the promise that you have discarded that dormant dream. You've given up on it. You've let it lie. You thought you were foolish. Other people thought you were foolish. You've given up. Talking about Abraham and Sarah. In Hebrews 6, the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 6, 18. So God has given us both His promise and His oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to Him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us, the promise. The original promise was in Genesis 15. The oath was in Genesis 22. All God ever has to do is give you a promise. It's enough. 
But out of His grace, sometimes He comes back to your Genesis 15 moment and He says again what He's already promised you once. He reminds you of His promise and He gives you that promise again and He swears on an oath that the original promise is still true. Genesis 15 is a promise. Genesis 22 is an oath. The writer of Hebrews says He's given us His promise and His oath. Some of you are full of promise tonight, but you're discouraged in the delay and God is going to come to this room tonight and write the oath on your heart and remind you that that dead thing that you've discarded that you I don't know if it's a hope for your marriage or a prodigal kid or a ministry or a dream or a business that thing that you've about given up on he's real this is your Genesis 22 moment where God comes to the discouraged Abraham and says don't you give up on this thing I gave you my word and I'm going to keep my word and God's come to this place tonight North Church to tell you I gave you my word I'm going to keep my word I'm going to ask the team, if they would, to come help me tonight prepare an environment for the Lord to search our hearts. Father, I just ask you, in the strong name of Jesus, would you wreck us, Lord? Whatever you did to me on the floor of that hotel after that convention, you exposed me for what I was. I was doubting where I used to have faith. I was criticizing what I used to bless. I was holding tightly to what I used to let go of. I was quickly becoming the man I'd ask you to never let me be. And I ask you in front of all these people, it's the natural tendency for me and people like me to become those people. I don't want to be him, Lord. I I don't want to play it safe. There's too much at stake. There are men and women in Dallas, Texas that are making decisions about heaven and hell. And if I play it safe, if I lead a church that plays it safe, if we don't stretch, if we don't live every day like it's our last, then they're going to go on and live their comfortable lives. spend a very uncomfortable eternity would you let that reality fuel me let a different spirit rest upon me Lord would you would you let I, there are dreams in the heart of this pastor that you've spoken and you've awakened and or there are moments in our age in our season we ask should we should we really do that God I mean I mean Lord we're we're in the middle here. We're not in the beginning. But God, would you would you increase the capacity and open Pastor Rodney's eyes to see so that this church can reach the unfathomable, the uncomprehendable, the unimaginable places? And would you create a culture among the people in this room, Lord, that are ready to go? And in every individual life, God, 
there's another story, another broken heart, another dormant dream. Awaken it tonight, God. Awaken it tonight. You've given some of us a promise. Tonight, would you let us hear the oath that you're a God who keeps his word. We repent. We repent of self-reliance. We repent of our pride. We repent of our distrust. And we ask you, will you teach us? Will you break us? Bring us to a place of surrender and dependency and complete surrender and radical obedience. Holy Spirit, I'm going to open these altars in a moment for people just to come meet with you, just to come meet with you. And they respond tonight, God, will you mark them and never let them be the same again. This is their moment with you, not their moment with me, their moment with you. Would you arrest their heart and mark them? Church, in just a moment, we're going to stand to our feet, and when we do, there's some of you that heard a message tonight, but there's some of you God brought in this room to hear a word that would change the trajectory of your life, and you know you have to get on your face, on your knees, or stand in front of the... you got to do something to acknowledge to God, I hear you, you have me, you have me, I'm yours. And when we stand, if that's you, I just want you to come to the empty spaces around the front of this building, and it's just you and God. I'm going to leave you alone. It's just you and God for a few moments tonight to let Him mark you. Stand with me all over this place, would you, church? And if God is calling out to you, would you respond to Him? Would you, re- you don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be those people. There's a dormant dream that needs to come alive, a promise, and you need to hear an oath. Come on.